As a consultant, I'm often called into an organization to help build leadership capacity, to sort out tensions, to get everybody on the same team, to break down silos, and to help nonprofits build a greater capacity to create this kind of high-functioning team. But how does it present itself when a client initially calls me? They tend to say something like, we have a great deal of conflict in our organization. I need help so we can identify the sources and eliminate the conflict. So think about that for a minute. What's the assumption? The assumption is that conflict is negative. Excise it from your organization and you are on a clear path toward the pursuit of your mission. Maybe it's time to revisit that assumption. What if I were to tell you that conflict doesn't need to be erased from an organization, but rather it needs to be normalized? What, you say? Yeah, normalized. Think about it. We're a more diverse society, ever more so by the day. We strive for diverse organizations with folks representing all kinds of life experiences, cultural backgrounds, ages, sexual orientations, and the list goes on. If you then add to that stew a dollop of a young generation in a workplace that demands to be heard, well, there's a lot going on there. These are the kinds of organizations we want and that we believe we need. And it may just be time to recognize that these kinds of organizations actually drive conflict. That not everyone thinks the same. Everyone has a point of view, and everyone expects that point of view to be heard and respected. It's time to look at conflict, not as a pejorative, but rather as a healthy component of conversations that lead to richer decision-making and thriving nonprofits. Your eyes are kind of wide open, aren't they? Not because you disagree, but because as a nonprofit leader and as a general old human being, you've been taught conflict, we avoid it, or we eliminate it. My guest today offers a new way of looking at conflict, as well as some skills to rethink your relationship to it. She calls it dancing with conflict. Would you care to dance? Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. My guest today is Parisa Parsa. Parisa is the executive director of a nonprofit called Essential Partners, which was founded 30 years ago as the Public Conversations Project. They work to train and equip leaders and communities to have the conversations that are most needed to manage deep conflict and reach shared goals. Sounds like the right guest, doesn't it? Parisa has been in nonprofit leadership her whole adult life as a board member, director of a direct domestic violence shelter, fundraiser for, fundraiser for a ministry connecting homed and homeless people, and minister of a mid-sized New England congregation. Raised in a multicultural and multi-faith family, Parisa has decades of both personal and professional experience managing difference and learning and leading communities and organizations through change. Parisa, I'm really glad to have you with us. Glad to be here. Parisa was a guest on this podcast just after the inauguration of Donald Trump. And we talked about how folks need to learn the skills of talking with people with whom they disagree ideologically. That felt like a really important thing to do after January 20th, 2017. 
That was episode number 29, and you can find it on iTunes and on JoanGary.com, and it's worth a listen. Two years later, I kind of wish more folks had absorbed um, the lessons you shared in the conversation we spoke about. Um, but be that as it may, we're in, a, we're in a different place, and we're having a different kind of conversation. So, Parisa, would you be kind enough to invite people to know just a little bit more about Essential Partners. What are, talk about your organization and its resources. You can find the resources and all about this organization at whatisessential.org. So tell my listeners just a little bit about your organization, its resources, and your work. Well, Essential Partners is dedicated to helping communities and organizations help to thrive and have skills to meet conflict with a creative energy and communication that can deepen relationships, even if agreement isn't going to happen on a particular issue or around a particular subject. So we began working around big public issues like abortion, Israel-Palestine, um, different kinds of uh, issues in faith communities around human sexuality, around um, tradition and uh, newfangled ways, uh, all of the different tensions that appear in ongoing communities. And now uh, we've really leaned into the skills to be able to build capacity for leaders and organizations that we can leave behind. So we might call, be called in for a particular hot issue that's going on, but uh, we're always interested in training and equipping the leaders within a community or organization to meet the next conversation. Because as you mentioned in the intro, we really believe that conflict is part of people showing up fully and we want people to be showing up fully. So we want communities and organizations to be able to meet that and um, have the skills to build relationship and keep that sustaining them through the inevitable conflicts that come up. Um, and we're going to come back to your phrase, show up fully, because it's not that you want people, uh, sure, you want people to show up fully because they need to show up fully. And there are, um, there are consequences if they, if they aren't given the opportunity to show up fully, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I want to be really clear. You're not in the conflict resolution business, correct? We're, we're in we're in the vicinity of conflict resolution <laughs> in, <laughs> in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. We're um, we distinguish ourselves only to the extent that we don't believe that some of the most divisive values driven ideological conflicts are resolvable in the sense that you can tie a bow around it and say, okay, we've solved that. We think that there are some things that really we're always going to have differences about, but that doesn't mean that we can't stay in relationship, experience being heard and understood and have deep respect for each other, even as we disagree. It's, it's a, such an interesting thing. I, um, I am a certified mediator, mediator, which I think you know. And so the idea that you would have a conversation where you disagree and the object of the game is not to get everybody on the same page is so fascinating to me because um, you, you, your work is not necessarily about getting everyone on the same page. It's about sort of about getting, making sure that everybody, everybody is heard and everyone is hearing one another. Am, am, am I being overly simplistic? 
No, that's the first step is everybody really hearing one another um, and being able to trust that what the other what people who disagree with you are saying is true for them, just as your position is true for you. Um, and then instead of trying to say, um, we are going to come to an agreement by one person giving up something in order to um, agree or you know reach some resolution about an issue, we say, what is it that we can, based on what we understand about each other, what can we work on together, right? So we're not going to probably find a, a, a final um, resolution to an issue as big and complica complicated and multifaceted as abortion or reproductive rights. However, there are some root issues that we can think about together that we might find some shared purpose around and be able to work together on. We can have deep respect for each other's positions, even while we're very committed to our own. And that feels so key, right? Respect, as opposed to my job is to persuade you that I'm right. And if I can't, it sort of triggers anger. It, it like It's sort of like you're wrong and I have feelings about the fact that I can't persuade you. And it's kind of your work is sort of about providing people with tools to have those conversations that um, somehow or another manage that sort of what's right, what's true in a way that respects each party. Do I have that right? Right. Absolutely. Okay. You have the secret sauce here. Let's hear more about it. So um, how about an example of some work that you've done in an institution or a training that um, helps listeners understand how you do the work you do. And um, and then I just want to say this because I don't want to forget. I'm also intrigued by the name of your organization. I know you changed it, and I want to know what that's about. You could start there if you wanted to and then go to an example, whichever you like. Sure. I can talk about our name. It just kind of flows from what we were just talking about. Um, we uh, went through a big process of sort of uh, – reckoning with the future of the organization a few years ago. And um, we were founded as a project of a family therapy institute. Um, so the name Public Conversations Project was meant to distinguish uh, the conversations that would be had through this organization from private conversations, basically, that were held in a family therapy session. Um, and we found, as time went on, that there was... Um, more and more desire for sort of big town hall kind of conversations. And folks imagined that public conversations project meant that we were um, a kind of come one, come all organization. And, and rather what we actually do is much more structured and defined and um, intentional conversations. Uh, our practices can be applied in different ways to those larger come one, come all settings, but that's not the primary locus of our work. And that was a little misleading. Um, and we were having some trouble with the abbreviation of the name, which was PCP. So that led to some uh, <laughs> <laughs> chuckles, <laughs> as you just did. Um, so we wanted to get to kind of what is the the core of the work that will remain the same. And um, as a nonprofit trying to figure out how to be fully sustainable in this landscape, we realized that there was a need to um, both lean into the capacity to help uh, 
folks in the corporate sector, as well as doing the mission-centered work with communities, um, you know, lower income communities or communities that didn't have the kind of resources or organization to bring us in. And so um, we realized that one of the key things was that we work in partnership wherever we go. We always are um, side by side and helping folks discover how they can too be side by side. Um, because when we're in deepest disagreement about an issue, one of the things we can agree on is that that issue matters deeply, right? And it's something that we will have to live with each other uh, in community around whether or not we agree. So maybe we want to be realizing what the essence of the issue is, seeing one another's essence fully, and believing that what we have to do ultimately um, as, as a human species is figure out how to um, live together and work together even as we won't agree. So that essence of one another's humanity and the essence, the essential nature of being able to live in community are the things that we're referring to with our name. Awesome. So um, I know that you have resources on your website, but then you go out into the field and you work with organizations of, uh, you know, a diverse array of organizations. So can you take, take us through an example of work that you have done with an institution and, you know, as, as part of that, sort of what the techniques are and, and the outcomes? Sure. Um, I have two examples, actually. Um, one is from a recent project. So you mentioned the, the shift in the tide of things since the 2016 election and the fact that we're, that folks are experiencing all kinds of conflict and feeling it kind of on a different level than uh, might have surfaced before. Uh, and so one of our responses to that reality um, and the fact that we're experiencing a widespread need greater than the reach of our organization um, to build these skills into communities and serving community leaders. Uh, we set up these this initiative in Ohio uh, that brought together folks in teams who wanted to be trained in skills around uh, engaging with conflict, managing conversations through conflict, leading dialogues through conflict, and then moving from dialogue to action, right? So one of the things that we often get as a dialogue organization is, you know, we've done years of talking and nobody ever does anything. And so how does the, what's the relationship between sitting in a circle and talking about our deep feelings or deep views to what actually happens in the world. Um, so, we had, so a quick yeah. question for you before you continue. So who were, so you went to, this was a project in Ohio. Who mm -hmm. were you retained by? Like what was the entity that called you and said, come help us? Thanks. That's a great. Um, so we were working in partnership with two other organizations. So um, the League of Women Voters in Ohio was really interested in um, all of the different complex conversations they were seeing uh, pop up and needing, you know, feeling the need for voters to have better conversations than they had been having. And an organization called Welcoming America, which is a nonprofit that works with um, helping communities become receiving communities for immigrants and refugees. 
I didn't know that. I, I love that organization. I had actually did some work with Welcoming in America. Their headquarters are in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and they do some <clears throat> they do some great, great work. So I, I actually didn't know that you had worked with them. They're fantastic. Yeah, they're fantastic, and um, we we helped them with their earliest dialogue guide when they were starting up. So yeah, we have a long relationship there. Um, so we, but we actually initiated this project. Uh, we got a grant and um, were interested in what does it look like to build capacity across a whole state, especially a state that has uh, real deep um, political diversity, right? And Ohio is famous since that 2016 election for that, <laughs> that <laughs> diversity. <laughs> um, and so we we invited, uh, working with a local partner um, who had a lot of connections uh, through the League of Women Voters, as well as through conflict resolution programs at different universities, put out a call for folks who wanted to come in teams to get this set of skills. And then we offered three different trainings. And um, those were folks who were working in civic government, folks who were working in university administration, and folks who were community leaders and activists. So it was kind of across that whole spectrum. But they were asked to come in teams so that they could work as teams back in their home community or organization um, to design and then implement some dialogue process. And one of them is this really exciting process in Oberlin, Ohio, where there was a great deal of division over a over the public schools. And there were um, there was lukewarm support for uh, having dialogue at all. A lot of people assumed, as I mentioned earlier, that you know the dialogue would just end up back at the status quo or be used as a tool by those in power to say, look, we gave you an opportunity to talk and then just do the same thing that they've always done. Um, so there was not a lot of trust, um, but the, the trainees who went through our process held a first dialogue in April of last year. And um, they intentionally didn't invite those folks who were perceived to be the ones in power who would pull the strings. They first invited just the local community participants, uh, kept the school board and administrators out of it. And then through the process of those community leaders trusting each other, getting more information, uh, learning how to ask for what they needed from the the school board and giving the feedback to the school board from those conversations, a second dialogue emerged and the board members and administrators joined as well. And through that, there were more participants, fresh perspectives surfaced, more opportunities for folks to talk in the larger community and feel truly included. And those new voices that were able to surface, um, they actually were able to move toward a municipal bond measure and get it approved um, with a new school building that should be ready for classes in 2022. So this very divisive issue, getting those new voices in and actually getting important feedback to the folks who had been in power and thought they knew what the community wanted, um, but hadn't been hearing all of those voices was really critical in getting some forward movement on a really stuck issue. Um, so you said you had another example. So uh, I'm anxious to hear I, 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 bringing this to life for people, I think, is super important. Sure. Um, another example is a, another nonprofit that we've worked with quite a lot, uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists, where we've worked on a couple of projects as they 
have worked, you, you might know of them. They do tremendous work in um, in bringing real world solutions to some of the implications of ch climate change for local communities. And they, so bringing uh, science-based research and approaches into conversation with where it meets the lived experience of communities that are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change and, and helping them connect. But one of the issues that they face as they do this work with local communities is that the scientific community has not always been a great uh, friend of communities that, are, uh, that have been marginalized. And so getting into really deep conversation that builds the kind of trust and understanding that helps uh, with bridging that divide. Um, so there's the divide around that historical perception of the ways science has been misused as a tool of oppression, actually. Um, and then there's also the, the, the language challenge, right? Scientists love to lead with all kinds of facts and figures and think that the data will speak for itself and absolutely will be persuasive. Um, but communities actually need to know that you're on their side, that you have their trust, that you have a relationship. And so our work with them, both around a big dialogue around landmarks and um, the, the effect of climate change on big public uh, pieces of land and property. Um, and in uh, rural coastal communities in the US South Atlantic coast has helped to walk them through a process of building that trust and understanding so that Union of Concerned Scientists can shift the ways that they communicate and relate with the communities and the communities can learn to articulate what they most need and wish for from the scientific community. Um, so much of it feels to me like it's about mindset and how you talk about things. And um, I just uh, I just recorded a podcast with a woman named Lisa Leahy. Mm -hmm. And I, I love her work. She's yeah. Amazing. Oh, yeah. oh, actually, <laughs> you introduced me to her. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> actually, I um, I did a blog post on 10 books that leaders um, in the nonprofit space think are pretty transformational. And her book, which is called How You Talk About... Uh, I'm going to screw it up. How you talk, how you talk about change can impact the way you work or something mm -hmm. like that. And mm -hmm. so much of this is getting people to think about both their mindset and, and their, and their language. It strikes me. So I want to now move inside organizations. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like I am seeing with my clients a greater degree of internal organizational conflict. And you might hypothesize that we see more of that because the world we live in is so much feels so much more polarized and intolerant than I remember it. And I wonder if, if you see that as a factor. And um, th so that's a yes or no question, Parisa. And then um, what other factors have you seen that lead to the dissonance we see inside nonprofit organizations? Well, I definitely think that the the larger climate that we're working in is a huge factor in some of the additional tensions, if not because we're 
buying into the divisiveness than because of the additional stress that puts everyone under. So the, you know, additional competition for resources as folks are concerned about government funding and, you know, how to reach philanthropists who are feeling overwhelmed and wanting to respond directly to some of the panic they're feeling. You know, there are all kinds of ways that volatility is being infused into our collective system that um, that adds to stress that inevitably um, makes us shorter tempered, especially at home with the ones we love. You know, I don't mean home, literally home, but, you know, within our organizations. I think that in addition to that, though, one of the things that we are we are called on often is, for it is um, that we have now had decades of work to build more diverse organizations in all kinds of ways, right? That our organizations should be reflective of the communities we serve, that we want to be able to have racial and ethnic diversity. We might want to have, you know, we often want to have other kinds of diversity that are, you know, along different lines, especially related to the service work that we're doing in nonprofits, um, whether that's around intellectual ability or uh, mental health status, or, you know, you can name all of the different things. And um, we've assumed that we just add people with these different qualities or, or pieces, you know, aspects of identity, and nothing else needs to change. Um, And so one of the places where we get called in often is where folks are feeling like they haven't been successful because they've met these different diversity goals they have in terms of counting the people of different categories that they have represented. Um, But they're not experiencing effect, you know, they're they're having really quick turnover or they're having conflict that they can't really put a finger on or manage well, or people are still not feeling heard and um, raising complaints or grievances. So one of the challenges in this time is that we do need to uh, figure out the ways of being that can, just to use the term I used earlier, you know, help people show up fully and understand that the systems that we had when there was one cultural group in charge uh, were in service of that cultural group's norms. And as long as you could, you know, manage yourself to those norms, uh, there wasn't conflict, right? (laughs) It was either driven underground or it was had in one particular way that fit the needs of that culture. Now, all of that's up for grabs and we need better ways of talking with each other so that we can create the culture together that helps all of those differences come forward in service of the larger mission. Right. You can't bring people with a whole host of different life experiences and attributes and skills together and and actually expect them to not be in conflict. I mean, that's kind of the point. The point is to bring different perspectives to to the table. And for some reason, nonprofit leaders seem to think that (laughs) when you drop that pebble in the pond, that there aren't all kinds of ripple effects. And they feel to me to be quite ill-equipped to... to, to manage that conflict, or as you call it, dance with that conflict, they seem to just want to figure out some way to get it to go away. (laughs) Right, right, right. And one of the things, I mean, one of the things that is 
absolutely just a human fact that we know from neurobiology is that we can tend to, uh, when we experience like even the the niggling idea of a conflict, to uh, to go almost instantly to the most extreme survival response, right? I need to get away from it. I need to stifle it. I need to make it go away in some way, or I need to go away from it. And actually the invitation in this kind of time in history, and if we want to build the strongest organizations we can, is to work on ourselves such that we can understand the invitation within that to kind of walk ourselves back a little from our neurobiology <laughs> and um, to build the skills to get curious about, you know, what is the invitation here? Um, I'm, you know, someone disagrees with me. Is that an opportunity to learn something about their perspective, to learn something about the limitations of my own perspective, to figure out a different lens on the problem that we're looking at together? I so get that. And I also think you're up against something that I see, this sort of people who are uh, have leadership roles in nonprofits, um, they're people with missions. They're, they, they have a strong sense, strong moral compass that they're fighting some inequity, that their position is right and true, and that um, – if only they can, pers- you know, all they have to do is make the case and persuade. And um, so I, I I think it, I wonder if you find that it's potentially compounded by the kind of the disposition of people who are drawn to nonprofit leadership that they tend to be right. So if you put them in a room with a group of people who disagree with them, that they, that they may instinctually go to, no, 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 (laughs) I've got this, I'm right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, none of us, none of us devote our lives to uh, nonprofit work, especially if it's a, if it's a, activist-driven, mission-based, you know, well, they're all mission-based, but, you know, an activist-driven impulse because we're lukewarm about what the work is that we're doing, right? (laughs) There's no way that you would take this level of pay or the, you know, all of the complications that come with, uh, with nonprofit work if you didn't absolutely feel devoted from your core. Um, And so I think there is one of the things that we actually offer folks is the invitation to think about uh, different skill sets that are effective in different settings, right? So when we're out there in with our activist hat on, we absolutely are convicted of what we are doing and um, want to be persuasive as possible and don't want to back down from that. At the same time, internal to our organization, that very thing that's an asset in advocating for our cause out there can be a huge liability because it's an invitation to um, not see the complexity of the issue, not see the complexity of um, the organization's inner workings, and therefore keep attracting people who are of the same mindset, right? And that ultimately hampers the cause out there in the world because you're not hearing the, but what if, or how about this idea of doing it, you know, and that complexity within an organization helps to fuel and strengthen the case you're making out there. Um, But you have to be able to kind of structure your time and your way of communicating differently and very intentionally to get from one skill set that might be really strong uh, as an activist to the other set that needs to be built up 
as a listener and a collaborator within your organization. I could also make the argument, having run an organization where I was indeed sort of a national advocate, that um, when the the ability, I think the ability of leaders to put themselves in the other person's shoes and to be able to be inquisitive about where the root cause of their stand is, is actually part of what it takes to be a good advocate rather than sort of this, I'm right, how can I persuade you? So I, I think far too often nonprofit leaders miss that. And, um, and so when you bring this into the workplace, how, um, you know, my, my listeners are all type A people that actually want some really sort of, okay, okay, how do I do this? Okay, now I get it. I'm supposed to have conflict in my organization. I'll buy that, Parisa. And mm-hmm. you're telling me that I need to reframe it uh, away from failure and sort of towards growth and learning. And how might I do that? So let's say you have a, a staff meeting where there, you're lucky enough to have these diverse perspectives and people are kind of going at each other. Um, and I'm the executive director. What's the secret sauce? What are some of the tools I can use to, to, to make that, a, as you say, a good dance and turn it into growth and learning? So one of the things that we always that that isn't really unique to us in terms of training, but is um, often neglected as we set up these opportunities for folks to really engage deeply with conflict is to think about the purposes for a particular conversation and to not um, try to load too much into a conversation. So it might be that as a leader or as somebody who's um, convening a group of people within your organization, you know that there is a conflict uh, coming up around how to move forward on a particular initiative. And um, you, the temptation is to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to surface all the perspectives, we're going to come to a decision, and we're going to have a you know, five-step plan to move forward within an hour, right? <laughs> we're all under this time pressure. We only have limited time to get everybody in the room together. You know, there are all kinds of reasons that we overload the purposes for a conversation. But when we know that there is a conflict that needs to get some light and air, it's really important to say the purpose of this meeting is going to be simply to surface all of our perspectives. So come ready to, you know, so folks need to have an opportunity to prepare themselves for what they most need to get out there and to, at the same time, be prepared to really listen to the perspectives of others. So being clear about purpose is the first thing I would say, um, and not overloading purpose. And then also to say how this, this meeting's purpose will feed into you know, the next conversation. So folks know where they're situated in time and space with a bigger initiative and that it's not just an airing of grievances. The next is to have some, some agreements for the spirit of how people are going to share and how they're going to listen. So sometimes this requires a little practice because we come to, um, especially in our busy professional lives, we've got the, the things we need to say and the ways that we um, are moving. And it takes some breathing <laughs> and some, some silence even to reflect on how do I want to show up here? What do I want to promote um, w- among us as a group? And you know, internally in terms of how I see this issue? And what do I want to prevent? What do I need to hold back in order for this conversation to be successful? So that does involve the folks who 
speak by thinking and aren't always very careful with how they speak to take a pause. Um, and it also requires the folks who are more quiet and thoughtful and tend to share only after the meeting um, to lean in uh, and step forward a little bit and you know, take the risk of saying something that might not be perfect. And it also means that we have to um, get curious, especially when we're tempted to judge or dismiss something out of hand, right? So curiosity is a really key thing in this management of the multiple perspectives in a room to sort of say, how did you come to that? Tell me about how that would work for you. What makes you um, offer that? And then offering people an opportunity to offering and expecting that the, the, when we surface all of these different perspectives and we're really listening, we'll change our positions sometimes and or we'll want to try on another idea and not to be then expected to be the advocate for all time for the idea that we surfaced first. I hope everybody who's listening just like pulled over and wrote this down is a meeting where you surface the perspectives. And what you're saying, Parisa, is that that that's the goal of the meeting. That's actually the, the mean, the, the meaning of the gathering rather than we're going to surface all those perspectives and then we're going to reach a decision. And we're going to do that in 45 minutes. Cause that's all the time we have. Cause I have to go and meet and ask a donor for money. <laughs> right. 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 So th- one of the things you're talking about here there's two things I'm picking up. One is time that if you if you make the commitment as you should that that decisions are richer for the diversity of voices that are engaged in thinking through the decisions, then you have a, a commensurate obligation to provide the space and the time for people to l- legitimately be heard. Right. Right. So we are having a conversation about conversations. Um, we are talking with uh, Parisa Parsa, who is the executive director of a nonprofit called Essential Partners. You can find them at whatisessential.org. And they work to train and equip leaders and communities to have the conversations that are most needed to manage deep conflict and reach shared goals. Uh, Parisa has been crawling all over the nonprofit sector for a really long time and has decades of both personal and professional experience managing difference and leading communities and organizations through change, uh, skills and attributes that in our world today are um, super, super important. So um, I have a question, I have yet another question for you, Parisa. The the discussion of conflict and tension in an organization inevitably leads to someone indicating that they don't feel safe. And they say, we need safe space. And I've been thinking about this as it relates to our conversation. And I wondered if um, uh, what you think people are looking for when they say that, and is your kind of approach to this um, something that uh, um, that manages that allows for that? We have uh, so that the term safe space is one that is um, itself a you know subject of a lot of discussion <laughs> um, uh, that that sometimes signifies wanting to be safe emotionally from um, folks who are. Uh, you know, 
especially when we think about conflict. Folks are often concerned about being berated, being told they're wrong, um, not being heard. Um, and certainly our process helps with that. Um, but sometimes safety has been used as a sort of cloak for comfort. Um, and we try to distinguish really carefully that when we're working with conflict, especially in organizations and communities that have avoided conflict for a long time, we're not always going to feel comfortable, right? We can feel heard, understood, respected, even while we deal with the fact that these conversations sometimes are awkward. Sometimes we're, or if we're doing it right, actually, we're going to encounter perspectives that we don't like particularly, um, that make us confront some parts of ourselves that we might not want to surface. So, so we tread carefully with the term safety and uh, really respect the fact that folks have sometimes, especially in the workplace, experienced conversations where there's an invitation to engage conflict as a sort of gotcha, where uh, you show up and you share from your heart and then end up dealing with some kind of recrimination. So we try to be really clear about what <clears throat> what we mean, what can and can't happen in the conversation, and to get the, the buy-in of all parties to some shared agreements about how the information will be used and, um, and what the nature of the sharing will be. But ultimately, it's the decision of the participants what will be safe for them, because what we know now, um, just, you know, the surfacing of so much information in the last 10 years about what people's different experiences are carrying trauma from marginalization, from, from direct violence, from all kinds of uh, experiences in the world mean that we can't as facilitators, and I don't think we ultimately can as leaders in a community or organization know what people are bringing in with them. So we have to make the invitation in such a way that folks can take responsibility for managing their own safety as much as possible and understand what they're choosing into and what the implications are going to be. That's excellent. And it goes to what you were saying earlier is about making agreements about how everyone is going to show up. What is the spirit of this conversation, right? And if you set that up, um, then you you can potentially cut some of that, what you just described off at the pass. So I, I wanted to um, kind of bring this to life with an example. For some reason, I find myself um, working with <laughs> A lot of lawyers, lots of um, legal advocacy organizations, legal, uh, you know, sort of public defense organizations. Um, it's uh, I'm not an attorney, but for some reason, it's one of a variety of sweet spots for me. And and what I I think what we learn and what we know about lawyers and I. My brother doesn't usually listen to my podcast, so I think I can get away with this. That my brother generally needs to be right. <laughs> Um, and that they've been really trained to get the facts, to make the case, and to win. And um, so let's imagine that you're part of a diverse organization. It's representing uh, marginalized folks who have no ability to afford representation. And these lawyers, they show up to do this work because they're disruptors, right? They have strong moral compasses. They want to change the system. And they go into courtrooms, and those skills, that moral compass, and that training serves them ever so well as they represent these clients. Um, but in the office, um, not really, uh, actually, it, uh, I've, I've often found in these different settings, it can really 
backfire. Uh, this same kind of disposition and training and act and the way that they and their approach. And so uh, you can imagine that in this situation that you have a pretty diverse staff that's in conflict all, you know, most of the time. And I wondered um, how, how you might, you know, how you might at least begin to tackle that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And one of the things that um, this is goes back to uh, a little bit to what I was saying about purpose is that um, we always need to understand what that that are that effectiveness or what is right is uh, actually framed by the situation we find ourselves in, right? So in a courtroom, being right is the effective way to achieve the purpose that you're therefore. Um, when we're trying to build relationship, when we're trying to understand each other, and we want to stay connected and work as a team that brings different skills and different perspectives together, we need to understand that our rightness is not going to be the effective way to reach that goal. Um, it doesn't mean that we aren't right. Uh, <laughs> for the time that we're trying on different perspectives or getting curious about someone else's perspective. But it does mean that there's a different skill set we need to bring in in order to be effective in meeting the purposes of our gathering internal to the organization. So sometimes, uh, especially for folks who are really hardwired, you know, who seem hardwired into that shape, we actually really explicitly will say, this is going to feel weird and we're going to try it on, right? This isn't going to feel like your natural thing that you are super good at. And it doesn't mean that you're not good at that thing, that it's not working here, right? It's the, it's the, if, if you only have, you know, that whole, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Uh -huh. Well, <laughs> the nail of the courtroom is not the, is not the same as uh, what you're, what you're looking at internal to your organization. So let's try on a few things and do some stuff that feels weird and see if it gets us to a better outcome, the effectiveness place. Um, so we need to set aside being right in order to be effective at meeting our relational or organizational needs. And it doesn't mean that that rightness goes away, um, but that we can actually have an opportunity to get in touch with where our own perspective comes from and what makes us so connected to it. What helps us, you know, what, why are we so convinced that we're right? Um, and can we try on another person's perspective and think about how deeply they're convinced of their rightness and then mm. figure out, you know, how do we work together? I, uh, yeah, I think that there's two components to it as I see it when I work with organizations like this. One is the, the piece about being right. And the other one is that, um, that folks who are drawn to this work, are trying to disrupt the system, the system that treats people unfairly. And so they're actually hardwired as disruptors. And I've been, I've worked with a couple of different organizations where we've tried to figure out, can we, can we frame this? You can't make someone who is, I don't think, maybe you disagree. I don't think you can make somebody who is kind of a disruptor. You can't tell them to stop disrupting. But I think there's something about constructive disruption that I've been sort of, tr I've been trying on recently. Like, is there a way to make who they are as disruptors something that's really constructive and productive inside the workplace rather than trying to dampen it down? Mm-hmm. 
One of the one of the things that I think that's absolutely right. Um, I also think that uh, we're understanding that that um, that disruptor energy or approach is one of many parts of us, right? Very few of us are all one thing, um, but some of us have had you know, have kind of carved out an identity around one aspect of how we are in the world because it's been successful for us or because it's, you know, how we're kind of lean anyway. Um, but also one of the things we try to do is give people opportunities to just try on um, different roles and um, see what surfaces for them in the midst of that, right? So with my disruptor hat on, I look at it this way. With my you know, needing to um, move an organization or a work team together hat on, I'm tempted to have this perspective um, so that we can all kind of develop a little more uh, agility in how we function with things and try on those different perspectives as ourselves, not just um, as a service to the other person and understanding them but as an act of empathy with those different parts of ourselves. Um, and then to invite them into conversation, you know, those parts of ourselves <laughs> about how we might want to um, move forward or what might be most effective in this situation. So <clears throat> we've gone over um, in, in a pretty big way, but I, I, I've decided that that's important. So, and it's my podcast, so I get to decide. Um, there's one last question I have for you, Parisa. I, I've been seeing a lot of organizations, because we've talked about diversity. We haven't really specifically talked about age, and I just want to spend a couple minutes on that. I've been seeing so many organizations in which the younger, often lower-level staff members feel voiceless. I, I feel like I've seen a rise in um, organizing, unionizing in nonprofits. Um, is this kind of organizing a kind of a good thing? Uh, or is it symptomatic that these folks don't feel heard? Um, do leaders want to kind of work to cut this kind of thing off at the past? Do they want to embrace it? Um, can you spend just a couple of minutes talking about, I mean, I, I think you said earlier is surfacing perspectives is actually going to be a meaningful contributor to making people not, so ensuring that people don't feel voiceless. But I just wonder what, what this, how do you see this whole, this whole notion of organizing unions and nonprofits? How, how do you make that a productive thing? Because sometimes it feels a little antagonistic. Yeah, I think that, um, well, first I'll say that I'm, I'm philosophically pro-union, uh, and <laughs> I, uh, I also think that the rise that you're describing is, um, is actually a response to um, the dissonance that people have experienced between the invitation for diversity and the lip service that's often been paid to um, being a more uh, transparent or inclusive organization um, that isn't accompanied by people actually experiencing that level of inclusion and representation in the decision making and the the ways that organizations have moved forward. So I think that it's really important for leaders to non-defensively find ways to understand and get real feedback uh, about uh, how the leadership is being perceived, how um, 
you know, where is that dissonance? Because it's often with senior leadership who say, we've done everything we can. We've, you know, we've tried to be inclusive. We've, you know, done all of these, had all these different initiatives. We've invited this, that, and the other, you know, they can give the list of things that they've done and still they're getting this response. And it's in that distance between the intention of the leaders and the impact that's being experienced by, um, the folks uh, on the staff that is the real invitation to a conversation about, you know, what are we missing and um, what are the expectations and how can we work together to figure out how to create the kind of organization that we want to be, right? So it's often in the places where the leadership has felt like they've done a lot of the work that folks are feeling that the most. And it's because there's something that's not connecting and we need to get really curious about what that gap is about and um, how to develop some shared understanding and shared language for what will look like respect or what will look like inclusion and what will look like um, actionable outcomes from the conversations. Um, <clears throat> so we are um, out of time. I, I the, the One of the takeaways here is um, you and I are sort of kindred spirits in this. I often say that the most the most powerful tool that a leader has is the question mark and mm -hmm. that asking people and getting curious allows so much to be revealed, um, whether that's in a performance review, right, whether that's in a, you know, offering somebody constructive feedback that's going to be a little difficult or whether it's in this kind of setting as well. So um, I, I really appreciate the kind of approach that you take. So um, we are just about out of time. Uh, Essential Partners does a great deal of training work. And if you go to their website at whatisessential.org, you can see <clears throat> where you can find them with varying kinds of trainings that you might find valuable. Um, they also, if I got this right, Parisa, they also do customized work with nonprofit organizations and institutions. Um, I've seen uh, some of that work and um, it's really impressive. And the last thing is um, I, I find that your website has an awful lot of really good downloadable resources that would be really nice complements to this discussion and can help you and your uh, help you and your staff and your board really begin to think about um, to think about conflict in a really really different way. Any last thoughts, Parisa, about your work, your website, resources that you want to make sure you get out there before we end? Thanks, Joan. Uh, I just want to say that most of our work is actually the customized work with organizations and communities. So um, feel free to give us a call or reach out via email if you just have an inkling that we might be able to be helpful and we can have a conversation about the conversation you want to have. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Um, uh, I love talking to Parisa because she is um, kind of wise and um, and really kind of gets to the heart of the matter. And because she's so good at having conversations, she got extra time on this podcast because it was such a good conversation. So Parisa, thank you so much for um, the work that you do that feels so important uh, and thank for joining you. us. Thank you for the important work you do too. I always love talking with you. So thanks.
excellent. Um, so that's that's it for today. Think about taking this podcast and and sharing it with your staff at a staff having them do it as a, a pre listen before a staff meeting or something, and and actually have a conversation about it. Um, I love doing these podcasts because I think they're tools, not just for you, but they're there's I like to think of them as shareable tools that can enrich and get po- folks in your organization, both at, at the board and the staff level, thinking differently. So uh, here's hoping that this was valuable to you and will be valuable throughout your organization. Uh, last comments, don't forget, you can always join us as a subscriber to my blog over at joangary.com. That's with two R's. Um, this is one of pushing on close into the hundred podcast episodes and they're organized by category on my website. So, uh, you got a knot you want to untangle and you think there's a podcast that might answer your question. There probably is. For those of you who run small but mighty nonprofits at the board or staff level, um, you want to learn more about our um, online membership site called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. You can learn more and join our wait list. We'll be opening again um, uh, in the not-too-distant future. And you can hop on the wait list and learn more about it at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. And until next time, thanks again for everything that you do to change the world in ways large and small. Thanks so much. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, at NonprofitLeadershipLab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.